I invite you to open with me to Matthew chapter 21 in your Bibles today. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to have a, a Palm Sunday uh, sermon here this morning, uh, commemorating and remembering uh, this day on which Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week, and uh, man, it's uh, Holy Week's probably one of my favorite weeks out of the whole year. Uh, just to take a, a week and a, and a time to remember and reflect on the work of Christ and what he has accomplished for us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that it would speak to our hearts today that it wouldn't just be words on a page, but that you would write them in our hearts and that you would make it alive, Lord, that you would uh, cause your word to have its effect in our lives as we know it doesn't return void. Lord, I thank you for each person, each, each heart that's here today. Lord, I thank you that not a single one of us is far from you, that you are close to us, and that you love us, and that you care for us, and that uh, not even the most minuscule of details of our lives is, is not seen by you even down to the number of the hairs on our head. Uh, Lord, what an insignificant thing. What a, what a small detail that is so unimportant. But even to you, you have every hair numbered. And how much more every other single detail of our lives. Lord, you are the perfect planner. You're, you're executing your perfect will and your perfect plan in the world and in our lives. Lord, though we don't always see it uh, as that way, though we don't always understand it, Lord, you are sovereign and you are good. And so as we spend time in your word this morning, make those truths come alive to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read, uh, we're going to look at uh, the first 17 verses of Matthew uh, 21. I'm going to share a little bit of background with you this morning and then uh, some thoughts from this passage. It says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them. And he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying. And here he quotes from the prophet Zechariah. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth 
of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus told them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Here we see Jesus fulfilling this prophecy that the prophet Zechariah some hundreds of years before had prophesied that when the Messiah came, when the King of Kings comes, when, when the great deliverer, the Christ, when he comes, that he will come not riding on some majestic steed, but coming in a humble way, riding on a donkey, riding on a beast of burden. And we see that when Jesus came, the one whom John the Baptist had declared that this was the Messiah, this was the Savior, the, the long-awaited and promised and prophesied King, John had declared that this was him. And when he came, he came in this way. And so Jerusalem was... was a buzz. Jerusalem was filled. There were several times during the year when God's people would gather in Jerusalem to celebrate. And this was the, the highest holiday, the Passover. And the historian Josephus tells us that upwards of two million people could gather in Jerusalem in the first century for Passover. And so Jesus comes in this time, he comes in this Passover when they're ready to celebrate and, and the crowds begin to shout and the crowds begin to praise him as their deliverer. Now, some almost a hundred years before this, before Christ comes into Jerusalem, in the year 63 B.C., the Roman uh, Empire had captured and, and taken over the land of Israel. And so for nearly a hundred years, the, the, the Jewish people had been subservient to the Roman Empire. They, they were not able to uh, self-determine. They weren't able to, to live and to worship the, the way that they wanted. They were having to pay taxes to Caesar, and they were living under the oppression of Rome. And over that hundred-year time before Christ comes, there's many different revolts. There's many different attempts to, to, to rebel against Rome, to, to throw off the shackles of Rome. And all of those are unsuccessful. And in all of those attempts, Rome had, had squashed them. Rome had crushed them, Some oftentimes with intense severity. And Rome had appointed kings who would rule in that area to, to govern those people. And the kings that Rome had appointed were not uh, Jewish kings, but rather uh, we know some of them were descendants of Esau. This was a great offense 
to the Jewish people. We know that King Herod that the wise men visited when, when they came looking for the king who was born in Matthew chapter 2. We, we know that King Herod was a descendant of Esau. Of course, Esau was the twin brother of, of Jacob. And, and just as Jacob and Esau wrestled in their mother's womb, so the descendants of Esau and the descendants of Jacob had been oftentimes at war with one another through their history. And Rome has the audacity to put a, a Gentile, a descendant of Esau, on the throne and cause uh, all of the, God's people to, to serve this wicked king. And so Herod, in an attempt to keep the peace, in an attempt to appease the, the crowds and the people and the religious leaders, he sets out on a great building project and he has the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. And the religious leaders at that time had, had cozied up to the Herods, the, the kings. They had gotten into bed with the, the political powers of that day to, to boost their own uh, prestige to line their own pockets to to increase their own wealth, and they had been so compromised by their desire for political position that they had perverted the worship of God, and God's people were in a dark place in a dark time because they had distorted the teaching of the Word of God, and and God's people were under. Not only the oppression of Rome, but the oppression of a, a false religious system. But the, the religious elites of the people, they were happy. They didn't want anything to change. They liked the way things were set up. They enjoyed the, all of the power and the, the notoriety and the uh, uh, prestige of, of being in league with Rome. We see this, if you'll turn with me to John chapter 11, this gives you just a picture of the, the state of things that Jesus was walking into as he entered in Jerusalem that day. Just a few months before this took place, Jesus performed one of his greatest miracles. In John chapter 11, it tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead calling a man who had been dead for several days out of the tomb. And you would think that upon seeing that miracle, everyone, their minds would be made up. Their minds would be settled. This has to be the Messiah. This has to be the King. This has to be the one that we've been waiting for. But in fact, that's not what happened after Jesus performed this great miracle in verse 45, it says that many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary, that's Mary and Martha, the, the sisters of Lazarus, and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. So there was a, a great group, a great number, who believed upon Christ on seeing what he did that day. But verse 46 says, but... But some of them went to the Pharisees, so they, they go back to Jerusalem, and told them what Jesus had done. And so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council. They get all of the, the leaders together, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. We, we have to put a stop to this, they say. We, we have to deal with this Jesus. Because if, if he keeps doing things like this, everyone's going to believe in him. Everyone's going to follow him. And he's going to set up a kingdom. And he's, gonna, he's going to dispose Rome. And, and we're going to be out. We're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our prestige, our notoriety. Everything that we've built for ourselves, we will lose if we don't deal with this Jesus. They had seen the miracles. They had seen Lazarus risen from the dead. You see, unbelief is not an issue of I need to see evidence. Unbelief is a spiritual condition. It is a spiritual condition. They saw the miracles. There's this idea that, oh, if we would see more miracles today, we would see mass conversion. Well, that's not what happened in Jesus' day. The Puritans had this great saying that the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. Some people see the miracles. Some people hear the gospel. And and God does such a work in their hearts and, 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 and melts them. But others see the same signs and hear the same gospel and their hearts become hardened. This was the state that they were in. And these are the religious leaders. These are the ones who know the word of God more than anyone else. But they had taken it and they were perverting it and they were using it not to minister to the needy and the downtrodden and the broken and the brokenhearted and those who were, who were seeking after God. No, instead they used it for themselves to set up a system to keep people oppressed and for themselves to become wealthy. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 51, John gives us this commentary. He says, Caiaphas did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Look at chapter 12, verse 9. It says, where Jesus was, that large crowds of Jews uh, learned that he was there, and they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus. They wanted to see the guy that was dead that had been raised. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. 
Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is how hardened their hearts were. That we, will, we need to kill the guy that Jesus raised from the dead. That's hard-hearted right there. Not only were they seeking to put Jesus to death, they were also seeking to put Lazarus to death because they didn't want anything to mess with their position, their system that they had set up. But notice here that through the prophet, or, or through the high priest, that, that he makes a prophecy, though he himself doesn't realize what he's saying, that God is speaking through him as he holds that office of high priest, that it's better for one man to die for the nation than for the whole nation to perish. But John says he spoke this to say not only was Jesus going to die for their people, their nation, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Listen, friends, he's talking about you and me. That through the death of Christ, God is gathering his people to himself who are scattered out throughout all the nations of the world. Through the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it was God's plan from eternity past that he would send his son who would die on the cross, who would raise again on the third day, and who would give eternal life to all who would believe in him. This was God's eternal plan. Before God ever said, let there be light, before God ever spoke the worlds into existence, before God ever formed man of the dust and breathed his life and spirit into him, before Eve ever sinned, before Adam ever sinned, before you and I were ever born, in the mind of God, it was always his plan that the Son of God would come and lay down his life as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In the book of Revelation, it says of Jesus that he is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now this is hard for us to understand. This is hard for us to comprehend. How is it that, that God could have a plan that, that involves human responsibility and, and human sin? And, and, and how does all of this come together that before God ever created the world, he knew that he would send his son Jesus? And, and how do we reconcile all of these things? And let me just say to you, I don't know how you reconcile those things. Those things belong to God. That, that's a problem for me, a finite creature, bound by time, bound by space, bound by my own limitations, bound by my own sin, bound by my own misunderstandings, bound by my own faults and, and frailty. But what's a problem for me is not a problem for God. The truth is that God saw you before he ever created the world. That you were in the mind of God. You, th you think about what every decision that, that's, that was needed to be made for you to even be born. And yet, 
God is sovereign over all of them. And what God was doing in Christ, what God was doing through, through the death and the resurrection was to gather into one the children of God. Those whom the Bible says he had chosen since the foundation of the world. That's Ephesians chapter 1, that, that in love, in love, he predestined us that we might be holy and blameless before him. God, from eternity past, has set his love upon us. And he sent his son to die so that through his death and resurrection he might gather to himself his children. And so from that day on they made plans to put him to death. Flip, flip with me one more passage this morning, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, of course, is the birthday of the church, 50 days after Passover, Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls on the church. They begin to speak in other tongues, other languages. They go out into the streets proclaiming the gospel in other tongues and people from every nation that are gathered there hear them speaking the gospel in their own native tongue, this great miracle. And Peter stands up and he, he preaches this gospel proclamation. In verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, he says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with many mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. He says, look, you know about Jesus. You saw the works that he did. You saw the miracles. You saw the signs. You saw the dead raised. You saw the blind see. You, you saw the, the deaf hear and the lame walk and, and the food multiplied. You saw what God did through Jesus. All of these mighty works attesting to you God's very stamp of approval on him that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 22, he says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was according to God's plan from eternity past that Jesus would die on the cross. This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a mistake. This wasn't uh, some sort of fluke. This, this wasn't uh, uh, God somehow losing control of the situation. No, it was the definite plan to the very detail so that even in Isaiah chapter 53, some 750 years before crucifixion was even invented, Isaiah describes the crucifixion in graphic detail. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was God's plan. This was his design. Nevertheless, he says, you crucified him and killed him by hanging him on a tree at the hands of lawless men. So it is the plan of God. It is the definite 
plan of God according to the foreknowledge of God. However, Peter preaching to the crowd says, you killed him. You crucified him. You killed your Messiah. Though it was God's plan, you are responsible. So we cannot say, well, God is sovereign. God is ruling and reigning over all things. And so God made me do it. God made me sin. No. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God rules and reigns over all things. Yes, he is working, as Ephesians 1 says, all things according to the counsel of his will. But we are still responsible for our actions and our deeds. And so he, he, he calls them out. You killed him and crucified him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He continues on, and I'm going to skip down to verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Verse 37, it says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We killed our Messiah. We killed the Christ. What can we do? And Peter tells them, repent, turn around, do a 180, change your mind, change your thinking, turn from sin, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. I know that oftentimes when we sin or because of our past, we feel like God could never accept us. God could never receive us. God would never call us to be a part of his family. The things that I've done disqualify me. And the truth is that the wages of sin is death. That is the truth. The truth is that our sin does separate us from God. That is the truth. But the truth is also that God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. That in Christ he made a way, the way, for sinners to be forgiven of their sin. If those who hung Christ on the cross could receive forgiveness of sin, there's hope for you. There's hope for you. There's hope for everyone. Repent and be baptized, he says, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no question about this. There's no maybe, there's no I don't know if, or, or no. If you repent and turn to Christ in faith 
and call out to him for salvation, this promise is for you. And for all who are afar off, you might feel like you are far from God today. You might feel like your sin has separated you a thousand miles from God today. But in Christ, God is calling you near today. God is calling you close to himself today. God is saying, be reconciled to me. God is saying, I, I, I want to be in a relationship with you. I am your creator. I am your father. I love you. And I have shown my love for you in this. And while you were still a sinner, Christ has died for you. Christ has shed his blood for you. My son died for you to pay the price for your sin so that he in Christ can call you to himself. And the promise is that when you will turn to him in faith, you will receive the forgiveness of your sin. I don't know how I got here this morning from my text. This was not uh, in any sort of plan that I had today. I'm trying to think, do I try and salvage this or do I just... Yeah, okay, let's go back to Matthew 21 here. And so with, with this, this backdrop, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. They had been oppressed for a hundred years by Rome. And so when he comes riding on a donkey as the Messiah was promised to do, he had proven that he had incredible power. And many times during his ministry, they had tried to take Jesus and, and make him king on the spot, which Jesus had retreated from. But now... He enters into Jerusalem just before the Passover. He's going there to die. He knows that that's why he's going there. In Matthew's gospel, three times he has already predicted his death and resurrection. He foretold it even again in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 20. He's not going there to be made king. He's going there to die. This was what the king was coming to do, that through his death and resurrection, he would establish the kingdom of God on the earth. The people don't understand this. The crowds don't, don't understand this. They think that he is coming in to push out Rome. They think he's coming in to, to head to the governor's mansion and take Pilate out to deal with King Herod, this false king that was put on a false throne, King, the, the, the Messiah was to be the son of David, and here there's a son of Esau on the throne. And so as Jesus comes in, they begin to, to take these palm branches off. Now for us, that doesn't mean a whole lot, but in, in, in that time in Jerusalem, the palm branch was like their national flag, their national symbol. At times, the palm branch had even been on their currency, so, so think for, for a moment, them waving these palm branches would be like us on the 4th of July at a parade, waving the American flag. Now, that's what this is like. It is a very patriotic thing that they are saying. It's like the bald eagle. It's like the American flag. It's like fireworks and hot dogs on the 4th of July on Mount Rushmore, okay? It's, it's very patriotic. 
And it's a show of patriotism trying to, to, to drum up a rebellion against Rome. And so the crowds begin to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us. Save us, Jesus, save us. Save us now. And the truth is they needed salvation and they wanted salvation. But the salvation they needed and the salvation they wanted were not the same salvation. They're crying out for salvation, but they're crying out for salvation from Rome. And Jesus did not come to bring them salvation from Rome. Jesus came to bring humanity salvation from the oppression of Satan and sin. The crowds don't understand this. They think the king is here. He's riding on a donkey. Who can defeat the one who has the power even over death? This is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for. Hosanna, Hosanna. But Jesus, upon entering into Jerusalem to the great shouts of praise, to this incredible crowd that is gathered, calling out to him for salvation as the, the son of David, the king, the Messiah, the Christ, he does not go to the governor's mansion. He doesn't go and confront Pilate. He doesn't go and confront King Herod. No. Where does he go? He goes to the temple. He goes to the temple. And he begins to drive out those who had perverted worship. He begins to drive out those who were profiting off of the worship of God. Those who had turned faith into a business. You see, the, the, the money changers and, and those who were selling the animals for sacrifice, they had set themselves up in the place that was called the court of the Gentiles. This was a place specifically designed where the nations could come and worship the one true and living God. And what they found when they would get there, like the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in the book of Acts, was they found a stock show and rodeo and a business. That, that what they had done was to put barriers between the people and God to obscure God and to lay upon them rules and, and burdens and their own traditions that were not God's law or God's word. And so Jesus goes in and he doesn't go to Pilate. He doesn't go to Herod. He goes into the temple and he cleanses out the temple to deal with their perversion of worship. And I have to wonder if... if if Jesus showed up today, you know, we all want Jesus to save us from our corrupt political system, don't we? Amen. If Jesus showed up today, we'd be shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, go to Washington, D.C. But I have to wonder if Jesus would come to the church house and not the state house. Amen. You see, because our problem is not a corrupt political system, though we have one, our problem in our nation is perverted worship. 
idolatry in the church. That's our problem. It's the same problem. People who have turned worship into a business to profit off the gospel. People who do not preach the truth of the word of God or preach the gospel or preach Christ and him crucified, but profit off of religion. Jesus didn't come to set them free from or or come to fix their political problem. Let me put it that way, to, to fix their politics. He came to fix their worship. And in the same way, listen, if we want to see a move of God in our in our nation, it, it, it's not going to be done through a political process. And, and look, register to vote, go vote godly values, show up at the ballot box. I'm all for that. But that is not our hope. That is not our hope. Our hope is Christ. And God's people cannot lose sight of the fact that Jesus came to set people free from Satan and sin. And so the Apostle Paul will pick up this theme and he will say, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood are not our enemy. There's principalities, there's forces, there's dark evil spirits. And too often Christians try to to fight, though we're called to fight, we cannot fight on the terms of the world or we're going to lose. Hello? There's spiritual battles, there's spiritual warfare. And the fight starts in our own lives. Our own lives, our, our personal responsibility is where the fight starts. And then in our own homes. To, to fight for our families. You see, the, the crowds were happy to follow Jesus when they thought that he was going to do what they wanted. When, when they thought Jesus was going to go and get rid of Rome, when they thought Jesus was going to, to, to set them free in the way they wanted to be set free, they were all too happy to throw him a parade, to follow him, to shout his praises. But the truth is that just five days later, this same crowd, these same people, these same voices were not shouting Hosanna, but they were shouting, crucify him. It's the same people, the same city, the same crowds. Well, what changed? In five days' time, what changed? He didn't do what they wanted him to do. He didn't do what they wanted him to do. And too many in the church today... Treat Jesus the same way. I'll follow Jesus. I'll serve you. I'll serve God if. I'll I'll give Jesus a chance if. If you fix my marriage, if you fix my business, if you heal so and so, then I will serve God. Listen, friend, if that's your attitude here today, You're in the same boat as this crowd that turned on Jesus in the matter of five days. 
I'll follow Jesus as long as he gives me what I want. Listen, if that's the case, you're not following Jesus at all. You're you're using Jesus to get what you really want. That means that you have set yourself up as the idol that's being worshipped. We do not come to Jesus bargaining with him. That's not the way it works. He is the king. He is the one who died and rose again. He is the one who shed his blood to forgive us of our sins. We do not bargain with God. We do not have anything to negotiate with. And we don't serve the king on our terms. We serve the king on his terms. Jesus said, if you put your shoulder to the plow and you look back, you are not fit for the kingdom of heaven. And so how about you? Do you only serve Christ because of what you hope he will do for you? Or do you serve Christ because he's worthy? Because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Because he's your creator and your sustainer and your redeemer and your king. Because he's worthy. Remember Job, he he had this incredible statement that he made in the midst of his great turmoil, in the midst of his great tests being attacked by Satan on every side. He made this statement. It's a very profound statement. He said this about God. He said, though he slay me, still I will serve him. What a powerful statement. Whatever God may choose to do in our lives, in this life, Will you still serve him? The crowds turned on Jesus in a moment. I've seen people turn on Jesus. I've seen them serve Jesus as as far as as they continue to get what the benefit from him that they want, but as soon as that doesn't go the way they want, they're gone. We serve him because he's Worthy because of who he is, because we see the immense value of Christ. To know Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians I count everything else as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Do you see Christ as that worthy? that you would count everything else as lost just to know him, just to share in his gospel? Do you see him as preeminent, as supreme, as surpassing all worth, as worth more than everything else that this world could offer or afford you? That's what the call to us today is in this passage, to not just see Jesus as a means to an end, but to see him as the ultimate end. He he is what we want. He is what we are after. He is who we love. He is who loves us. 
He is who we are searching for, who we are pursuing, who we are desiring to know more and more and more and more. And so that, that we will even lay aside sin, we will lay aside weights, we will lay aside stumbling blocks, we will lay aside even good things so that we could spend time in his presence, that we could know him more. Is he worthy of all of our attention, all of our focus, all of our praise? Or is he only a means to an end for us? That's what the great message is of this passage, is that Jesus is not the means to an end. Jesus is the end of all things itself. Paul says that by him and through him and to him, are all things. And Jesus has a way of doing things his way. I don't know if you've been serving God long enough to notice that. He doesn't necessarily do things the way we think they ought to be done. On our timetable, according to our plans... He has his way of doing things, and hear me in this, his way is the best way. He does all things well. Jesus did not come to bring freedom from Rome, but freedom from sin. The oppression that they were under was not simply external, but it was internal. The salvation that they needed was the same salvation that we need to be set free from the power of darkness and the power of sin. And that's what Jesus came to do and that's what Jesus did. Amen. I invite you to stand with me this morning. Let's just go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are good and that you are sovereign. And Lord, the great promise that you have made is that all who would turn to you in faith would receive salvation and forgiveness of sins, would receive the promise of your Holy Spirit, that you don't turn any away, but that all who call upon your name are saved. So, Lord, that is our great hope this morning, just as we've gathered here today to cry out, Hosanna, to cry out, save us. Lord, you are our Savior. You have saved us. You have redeemed us. Lord, we have a confidence in your work today. Lord, our faith is not in our faith. Our faith is in you and your work on the cross. Help us, Lord Jesus, to see you for who you are, that you are worthy, that you are high and exalted, that you are seated at the right hand of the Father, that you are ruling and reigning today. Lord, that nothing is, is beyond you, nothing is a surprise to you, nothing is beyond your redemptive power. So, Lord, whatever test or trial we may face in this life, 
Help us to remember to look to you, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us, Lord, in the midst of of whatever we may lose, if we gain Christ, it is worth it. Help us to have that attitude and that outlook. Help us to value you as supreme for who you are, that we might know you more and more. Lord, as we go out from this place today, we go out in faith, remembering the work that you've done for us. Lord, as we celebrate this week, this week of great celebration where we celebrate the wonderful victory that you accomplished for us through your death and resurrection. I pray that as we reflect on these great truths these week, this week, that you would make them come alive to us evermore in evermore detail. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. just want to remind you that we will have our prayer teams up here uh, in just a few minutes. If you need prayer for anything, I encourage you to do that. And let me just uh, pray a blessing over you as we go out from this place. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. God bless you.